like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Did you know you can get all your favorite fall drinks delivered right to your door? Well, you can with Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. Compare prices across your local liquor stores on a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. Right now, Drizzly is giving all new customers $5 off their first order. Just enter promo code FALL5 at checkout. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Can't swatch in store? Finding your perfect foundation match is basically impossible right now. That's why Il Maquillage's online quiz is such a game changer. It finds your perfect match in seconds from the comfort of your own home. And it gets even better. With Try Before You Buy, you can try your full-size shade at home free for 14 days. So convenient in times like these. Take the quiz at ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's I-L-M-A-K-I-A-G-E dot com slash quiz. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamic's headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Now it's like a humongous trend, of course, because of Black Panther. But if we go back eight years, when I first got back to Detroit, I wanted to do something with Afrofuturism here, but didn't really know what to do. And I was bugging my art friends to like make classes, Afrofuturist classes. But then I was just like, why are you asking other people to do it? Why don't you just do it yourself? So I developed Afrotopia, but you know, the initial, initial inspiration for Afrotopia was coming back home to a city that is majority black, it's 85% black, and the people who are deciding our futures, aggressively investing in their own vision of Detroit, of futurist Detroit, were white men. And that just is unacceptable. We've already gone through centuries of white men envisioning futures for our black bodies, and that does not bode well for us. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Derringer. I'm Amy Devers, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to Ingrid Lafleur. Ingrid Lafleur is many things. She's an artist and curator, a pleasure activist and cannabis advocate, and the founder of Afrotopia, a creative platform that looks at ways to implement Afrofuturism within Detroit. 
Born and raised in Detroit, Ingrid ran for mayor in 2017, and in the process gave a very prominent voice to some innovative thinking and creative avenues for enhancing Detroit's systems and governmental architecture. As you'll hear, her mind is lush and alive with creativity and optimism for crafting a better future. Let's talk to Ingrid. My name is Ingrid LaFleur. I am a born and raised Detroiter. I am living here now. I'm very proud of my Detroit roots. I am a artist, curator, uh, pleasure activist, cannabis av- advocate, and founder of Afrotopia. It is a experimental creative platform that looks at ways to implement the cultural movement Afrofuturism within Detroit so that we can expand imaginations and help create, craft new futures for Black bodies because I just want to help make the world a better place, quite honestly. That's a very pure motivation, and (laughs) we celebrate that. (laughs) Okay, cool. (laughs) We want you to paint the picture of your your youth for us. Like, tell us about growing up in Detroit. Tell us about your family and what kind of kid you were and what captured your imagination. Yeah, so I had the pleasure of growing up in Detroit, Michigan. I was born in 77, so when... I was born, we had our first black mayor in office and Detroit was 99.9% black American and it was wonderful. I, I call it a golden era for me and my experience growing up. I had an amazing time and quite honestly, it's probably because it was majority black and still is, but now it's 85% black. It it was a safe place for a black kid to not have to focus on their blackness, but be able to imagine and experience the world without having to deal with race issues. And that was basically my experience. My father was a dentist and my mother is a foreign language instructor. And currently in her retired life, she teaches Qigong, which is the mother of Tai Chi. And yeah, and they both, my mom was the traveler who spoke the foreign languages. I would, we traveled to Japan together. I was 10 years old going abroad with her so she can strengthen her Japanese language skills. And that was amazing staying in Tokyo for three weeks. But we've been all over the world together. And then my father, his passion was art collecting, which the entire family really participated in. But it was really my father who was just super, super into it. And so we ended up amassing an amazing art collection that we still have. And that, of course, influenced me to go into art And at first, it was a major in art history. I wanted to be an art lawyer, and then I became a curator. Then four years ago, I became an artist. So that was my own long journey with art. And I still really enjoy visual art, but I'm using, and my relationship to it has shifted because of the needs of Detroit and the world. But I do believe that art is a beautiful catalyst for really kind of pushing our own personal internal boundaries so growing up with an art collection of course helped me to 
stay in a kind of expansive state. My father was a a history major and studied religion. So I had the wonderful experience of going to psychic fairs and experiencing various types of spiritual modalities. And that influences my art practice because I work with healing crystals. The energies of crystals can really help heal our traumas, present day traumas, historical traumas, traumas deeply embedded in our DNA. And that is a center focus as an artist is to really help heal our traumas because then we can finally make decolonized futures. Uh, Right now we all have colonized minds. Mm -hmm. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how do we decolonize our mind, liberate ourselves so that we can really make the world the way that we've been dreaming and envisioning and we talk about and that's fun loving and utopian as much as possible. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I want that too. (laughs) Right. It'll just be more fun. It'll just be way more fun. (laughs) So much better. (laughs) Totally fascinating to me. Just Mm -hmm. the idea of having different spiritual experiences at such a young age, but also being exposed to so many different cultures and so much artwork and languages. I mean, that's an ideal, I guess, foundation for being a creative human or becoming a creative human. (laughs) Yes. So were you pretty, like from the beginning, were you kind of like feeling out who you were and what you wanted to do in art. It sounded like you thought about being an art lawyer, which I'm not really sure I understand what that is, but that's really (laughs) interesting to me. And then you shifted gears. So like, can you just talk a little bit more about your adolescence and like, were you super driven? Like I definitely want to be an artist or did you kind of meander to that path? Well, because I spent such a, a great amount of time with my dad going to museums and galleries and we even would take day trips to Chicago and Toledo to see exhibitions. And then definitely Detroit film theater at the Detroit Institute of arts. We basically lived at that film theater watching documentaries and indie films. So I was always very visually oriented, even though we weren't necessarily into design per se, we were just constantly unpacking artwork and film and history that's attached to it, right? Everything that you learn through the artwork, mm-hmm. long conversations that my father is a, a huge talker. So it definitely like shaped me in terms of my relationship to art. So when I was studying for my BA at Spelman College, I focused more on art issues than the artists or art movements. So I was looking at the four artists that were censored and basically kind of became the excuse for conservatives to shut down independent artist funding from the National Endowment for the Arts. And I found that that fascinating. And I'm against the censorship of all kind, actually, mm-hmm. as a result of that, just studying that situation. And then after that, I was studying Nazi era stolen objects. And Mm -hmm. that's when I really started getting into cultural property and Mm -hmm. and how cultural property, this artwork, holds a history that's very important to a people, especially the people who have created it. So Nazi-era stolen objects doesn't necessarily mean that 
the Jewish population were creating the artwork, but they owned the artwork and it was stolen from them. And that was part of their family legacy. And I really understood what that meant. You know, having an art collection, it's not just objects that you own. It really does become your family. Mm -hmm. From there, I started studying sub-Saharan cultural property, tangible, movable objects that were taken by the, mostly by the British. And looking at repatriation issues in sub-Saharan Africa. And that at first for me was very black and white. Our objects need to be returned. And hence the reason why I really wanted to get into law. Ah, law is a form of activism. Action. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but then I went to NYU grad school and took a law class at Columbia and quickly realized that I am not a lawyer person. <laughs> I'm not that type. I'm too emotional. Mm-hmm. I'm maybe too creative in a way that probably would not assist me as a lawyer. Mm. So I just decided to curate. And at the time, being in New York, this was when the hedge fund managers were like buying up contemporary art and the bubble was happening and galleries were being created in apartments. And like this new career of independent curator was kind of created. And I thought that that was great because I'm not really into working for institutions. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I really love Mm -hmm. working for myself. And in New York, I just started curating exhibitions and I just just didn't stop. But it became for me, it's an educational kind of endeavor. I'm very audience centered. So many curators really love to work with the artists and the art projects and developing that and really getting into the artist concept. Whereas I like to be the translator. I like to be the one yes. to present the work to audiences that might not have ever had access to it and then try to explain what this work is about and putting it in context, you know, within, the, of course, the art world, but also within our current contemporary historical moment. And that has always driven my work and being in Detroit, it, it just turned into a more social justice kind of focus. And I will get into that later. You know, in the beginning, it was just really, you know, I was a kid who just wanted to absorb anything and everything that was given to me. I'm, I'm a highly curious person. I always love Albert Einstein's quote, like, I'm not smart I'm just very very curious mm. and it, that that staying in a, staying in a curious mode really is super helpful for just to really understand the world and how it operates and as I get older I'm understanding that that's a skill that that is starting to that is lost amongst adults. I totally pick up on the translator vibe that you're putting out there and that your curiosity is hypercharged And so from a very young age, being exposed to all of the different cultures and the way the world works, you've started to deconstruct it. And then you figured out that not everybody has access to this or a brain that works like yours. And so it's kind of your role in the world to help demystify a lot of this stuff for people who might need that demystification. Is that? Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Very. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to go back to one of the things that you said earlier about objects and their cultural, I guess, representation and art as 
being family? Because that's really interesting to me. Because when we think about objects, whether it's art, whatever a creative person makes, you know, whether it's a building or a chair or, you know, a painting or something like that, it's not always thought of as like, where does this exist in time and place? What will be thought about this in 20, 30, 40, 100, 200, 500 years? You know, I think that's a really interesting concept in, in thinking about how these objects survive beyond us, but also beyond our cultures, beyond our families, beyond our values, our, you know, society. And just thinking about how that would represent us to future generations of the world or even of the galaxy. <laughs> so I think that's just a really interesting concept to think about. And I don't think it's discussed as much as it should be. Yeah, I think that unfortunately, art has, the art world has become a very elitist space and has intentionally created this barrier and unfortunately that means that people who are not in the art world don't really understand the relationship that is developed when you have artwork in your home. I should be very specific in saying contemporary artwork that we view as objects because you can get into cultural objects that we do have a relationship that people might not identify as art or cultural objects Mm -hmm. within their home. Mm -hmm. But what I'm specifically speaking about are paintings and sculptures and prints and all kinds of art objects that are part of an art market, right? So we're, we're always thinking about the price tag and that shuts a lot of people down. Even though there's many ways to go about that, right? You could collect work from students and grad students and, you know, just go to your local gallery and see what's going on and support in various ways. But, you know, the art world has branded itself in a way that it wants to kind of shut it down for only people who are wealthy. But then that story of a relationship with the artwork and the reason the relationship develops is because you see it every day and you see something new in it or it makes you reflect about something in your own world or life. So you're having these conversations mm-hmm. with these these objects that you would normally view as very silent, but when they're, they're actually very loud and they, (laughs) they Mm -hmm. have their own personalities and, you know, over time you just fall in love and, and they spark memories. And I was traveling for quite a long time. And when I finally was able to like come in contact with the art collection, because I, I got the privilege of acquiring it for my parents, It just totally was like a time travel and it was great, really beautiful memories of growing up and having the work on the walls and the collection so large that I can't even have it in the house that I stay in. (laughs) My parents had a bigger house. So, so unfortunately some of it is sitting in storage and I'm constantly thinking about ways to share it with the public. Mm -hmm. I have this thing. I I do that a lot. I have my own library that I've turned into the Afrotopia archive and it's just all Afrofuturist literature that I made available for the public to access and to take if they want to. But, you know, this is something that my father taught me that when you have whatever little bit of privilege that a black woman has who grew up in a middle-class 
kind of world and was able to travel to over 30 countries, I have a responsibility to give back. And I'm constantly thinking about how, how much am I giving back and who am I giving to and why and what kind of impact do I really want to make? And with visual art, I, I really want more people to definitely be more involved. But for the past eight years since I landed in Detroit, I came as an art dealer and went back to curating and teaching simply because the needs are so great that I can't really talk about buying artwork. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even though there are professionals here who can definitely afford it, it's just, it's hard to talk about the art market when you know children are living without water in your city. So, you know, it's just that that balancing act. And I'm really thankful that other people have taken on that kind of position and role to develop our art market here in Detroit, which is quite small. And I really would love it to grow. And I'm thankful for the dealers and the curators that are working in that realm to, to continue that. Unwanted family guests are like fish. They start to stink after three days. So what's the best mattress for them this holiday season? Definitely not a nectar. Then they'll never leave. Flip those fish your old mattress and put your human body on a nectar. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. A fresher deal than your mackerelly mother-in-law, right? Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Work. You mentioned Afrotopia, so let's get into that because it's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to talk about. I would love for you to just tell our listeners more about this project and your focus on Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism, I came in contact with it when I was in college at Spelman. I had these amazing friends that I call my brothers who were DJs and they were playing Afrobeat coming out of London. And Afrobeat, if you want to look it up, Bugs in the Attic is a really great um, group to start with. They tried to explain to me about Afrofuturism and it was coined in 96. And that's around the time that I was in college. And it was new and exciting. But once they explained it to me, I was like, wait, that's what I've been into all this time. Because yeah. I'm the nerd <laughs> who loves crystals and Atlantis. <laughs> and, you know, I like all these other kinds of like 
esoteric, you know, ways of thinking, being, practicing. And so Afrofuturism was like a home for me. But at the time, it was really music focused and literature focused. So the first exhibition came out in Minnesota by a group called Abyssinian. And when that happened, I was super excited, like, okay, it's growing, it's developing. Now it's like a humongous trend, of course, because of Black Panther. But if we go back eight years, when I first got back to Detroit, I wanted to do something with Afrofuturism here, but didn't really know what to do. And I was bugging my art friends to like make classes, Afrofuturist classes. But then I was just like, why are you asking other people to do it? Why don't you just do it yourself? So I developed Afrotopia, but you know, the initial, initial inspiration for Afrotopia was coming back home to a city that is majority black. It's 85% black. And the people who are deciding our futures, aggressively investing in their own vision of Detroit, of futurist Detroit, were white men. And that just is unacceptable. We've already gone through centuries of white men envisioning futures for our black bodies and that does not bode well for us so i thought that afrofuturism would be a really great way for detroiters to center the black body and imagine different types of futures and really just kind of expand the imagination and like really play with whatever limitations we have in our minds and then the other thing is that Detroit it's black and it's beautiful but it is kind of at the time was more conservative than what I was used to by that time traveling all over the world and witnessing blackness being performed in different ways and defined in different ways and I really wanted to make sure that Detroit was on par with that since we are one of the last majority black city I think we are the the last one um And so, you know, I thought it would be important for our progress, for our growth to be Afro-global in our thinking and perspective. And Afrofuturism is extremely global. So basically, I was able to accomplish a lot (laughs) by implementing Afrofuturism. Now, when I first (laughs) thought about Afrotopia, and I really was thinking that Detroit is my utopia. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but it is my utopia. So I just spoke about the project, like in progress. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do yet, but I really want to do something with Afrofuturism. And so it really began this kind of speaking tour on Afrofuturism, like teaching people about Afrofuturism. The thing that I quickly came to realize is that Detroit is extremely Afrofuturist. We are an Afrofuturist hub, but the language just wasn't being used. And that's it. And really, Afrofuturism is a label. It's more about gathering communities that have already been in an Afrofuturist state together so that we can find each other easily. And so I found that with Detroit once I really, after a couple of years of just really diving deep into all the beautiful subcultures here and all the different groups that are working here and witnessing the level of resiliency and innovation, ingenuity coming from these Black bodies, I was just like, oh, we are definitely an Afrofuturist space. And of course, there's Detroit Techno (laughs) that already places us in that space. But I just, you know, it was really great and and surprising to, to find that even beyond Detroit Techno, 
we are Afrofuturists. So Afrotopia now, the way that we work, we have a book club. We read a different book every month of Afrofuturist literature, be it Octavia Butler or Neil deGrasse Tyson, which will be the next one. We occasionally give parties, Afro-global parties, and we teach youth about Afrofuturism and more of the principles of Afrofuturism. And we have a performance art and spirit science festival. It's called Siggy Fest, and it's based off of a, a legend slash cosmology that these two amphibian-like beings called the Nomo came down from the star Sirius, or Sigitolo is the name of the star in Dogon. And they went through the ocean, came onto shore, and imparted to the Dogon, the Dogon are in West Africa, knowledge that is forming their spiritual practices, agricultural practices, even their structure of government. And that particular cosmology is is pulled upon in Afrofuturism since you can find album covers with Novo on it in, the, mm. in, I think, the 60s or 70s. So people have been pulling on that specifically. So that's the cosmology. And then the legend is that when the helical rise of the star Sirius happens, which means that it's seen before the sun, that's the dog days of summer because it's the dog star. Mm. that the universe opens up and the great one pours her energy directly into all this light and energy into the universe. So the purpose of Siggy Fest is to harness that light Mm. for Detroit. And it's interesting because at first when I was pitching the project, I would talk about the performance art part of it and just really excited to show Afrofuturism using a different discipline of performance and people would be like that's cool but when I would talk about this legend and the cosmology and all the history behind it people would get super excited they were like yes I want to come and harness light <laughs> yeah. and I was like y'all are so awesome Detroit is so awesome <laughs> so, so we we have that festival we're planning the next one hopefully soon we'll be able to have that and now you know we are moving into another phase I've gotten deeper and deeper into Bitcoin, more specifically blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to figure out now how blockchain technology can help solve for quite a number of inequities that we're experiencing Mm -hmm. in our society. And that's like our bigger project. And it's a new baby for us. And we're very excited because it adds on to the teaching aspect of Afrotopia and now we're becoming action oriented and really going forward. And I guess the action kind of started with me running for mayor of Detroit, but yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah, I know. But Afrotopia itself, we're like kind of pulling from that experience and what we've learned and growing and, and continuing the the agenda that I put forth as uh, a candidate. Well, it makes sense to me that you're the person who said, why am I waiting for the art world to do this? I'll just do it myself. And then you're also like, why am I waiting for the decolonization of the mind? I will help people and I will do this myself. Why am I waiting for people to imagine a a better, more equitable future for black, 
bodies. Why don't I do that myself? And you ran for mayor, which is like, hallelujah. That's amazing. Even just the the energy that you put into that. I read your plan of action. It's full of brilliant logic and innovative ideas. The visibility that you got for the movement the voice that you put out there in the world. It's so powerful. And I want to know, why did you decide to run? And what was the most important thing you learned from the experience? Why did I decide to run? So when I started teaching Afrofuturism, I got super excited and wanted to teach in schools. And I became a substitute teacher so I can understand education. And I have this thing about teaching myself a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) It's a riskier, difficult path, but I always learn better by doing. And in this process, I'm thinking, I'm just going to go into this classroom, I'm going to learn about curriculums and how to create one and, you know, youth and working with youth, which I had limited experience and just understanding school and education, like just trying to just understand it all. And man, (laughs) instead I learned about the deep, deep, dark challenges that Detroit is facing, that at that time, no one was talking about in my circles. Mm -hmm. So we were focused on tax foreclosures and the housing crisis. Mm -hmm. Definitely knew about that. And that's what dominated the conversation. And then the emergency manager that was put in by the state, that dominated the conversation quite a bit. And it wasn't until I got into the classroom that I started learning about children or families that don't have access to water because our city government is shutting it off on them. And I understand capitalism and you got to pay a bill and blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to human beings, I do not think there is any excuse or explanation to deny a human being water, air, clean, fresh food, shelter. These are like very basic, basic, basic things that we have an abundance of. Detroit and Michigan is surrounded by 20% of the world's fresh water. So when you think about our water crisis, if you think about the water crisis in Flint, it's absolutely egregious. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's ridiculous. There's, <laughs> it angers me. Yeah. And our mayor, there's a video of it online that you can find when he was asked, like, hey, people can't afford the water bill. Please stop the water shutoffs. He's just like, pay the bill. So let me back up a little bit. of Detroiters are living in poverty if you add the working poor. 60% of our youth are in poverty. Our water bill is probably one of the highest in the United States, if not the highest. And the reason is because we're processing sewage from the suburbs. So when you get your water bill, you see that the actual water bill is really low, but the sewage is extremely high extremely high that's so messed up right so knowing all of those factors our city government is still penalizing its citizens and we voted for them right so to understand any issue and i recommend this to everybody whenever we get a little irate and pissed about an issue and you're like what are we going to do about it well understand that there are people always doing something about it Mm -hmm. and in detroit 
our social justice community is so tight and so brilliant and so active that people from around the world tried to learn from them. And so, of course, I immediately went straight to them to learn. I wanted to understand this water crisis. And from there, I started learning about all kinds of crises that we're dealing with. Environmental, the entire gamut and um, school closings. There's, there's just so many unnecessary challenges being made by our city government. And that is why I ran, because I didn't like that people were not listening to extremely logical, rational solutions. Mm-hmm to these problems that are plaguing our citizens and our residents. And, you know, of course, I'm being clear about (laughs) residents, just anybody who's staying in Michigan and Detroit should be afforded the same things as citizens. I have an impatience, like I don't really wait for other entities to do something about it. I wanted to do something about it. And what became really important for me more than winning was planting seeds in people's minds to know that they have options. Yes. And all too often our politicians will not talk about risky options because they, they just want to win. And it's all about winning. It's all about the ego and it's all about power. And for me, it's all about the people. So running, it was probably the most difficult, challenging thing I've ever done. I can imagine. In my career. Yes. (laughs) It's exhausting. You have to contain and absorb so much information. As a woman, you have to learn how to communicate so that men can hear you. Yes. I quickly learned that I have to be very direct. I had to have all the statistics where men didn't necessarily have to do this. But as long as I was direct and I had the math and the statistics to back it up, they were, men were more likely to hear what I was saying. I really wanted to hear from Detroiters. I really wanted the campaign to be a co-creative process. I really wanted to make sure that everyone felt like they were a part of this campaign. So for my campaign office, I had co-creation sessions every week and we would pick a topic and discuss that topic and really unpack it. We have a, a literacy issue here to foreclosures on occupied homes. That, that was a very extensive conversation about air, water, Um, and climate Mm -hmm. issues, Mm -hmm. cryptocurrency, the creative economy. We just, you know, just went in and some people had experience within these different areas, restorative justice practices. And as a result, I was able to learn even more. So the, the setup was we would sit in a circle in my campaign office. I would say, thank you for coming. This is the theme. These are my ideas for tackling this problem. I might be right, might be wrong, please let me know and let's talk. And people would, you know, share their own ideas, which are way more helpful for people who are actually dealing with the problem. Mm -hmm. So somebody I know whose house is being foreclosed on, he wanted the foreclosure because the city refused to repair the infrastructure that was causing flooding in his basement and costing him thousands of dollars Ah. every year. So, you know, you think one issue is black and white and it's not necessarily black and white. And that is something that would behoove anybody who wants to run for office, any politician who might be listening, always stay in a listening mode, always stay in a learning mode. You don't know everything. And actually, you're probably more removed now that you're a politician. 
Right. Oh. It's really important not just to hear, but to, to really absorb, like to to be compassionate. You know, I feel like compassion is just out the window with our, our city government and hence the reason why we're not human centered. Out of the co-creation sessions, I created a plan of action. So I had a platform that I was speaking on throughout the campaign. But then the plan of action came about a couple of weeks before the primary that really was literally taking all of the knowledge that I had gained from interacting and talking to Detroiters all over the city. And, and I brought it into this one document. What was really great was that I felt more comfortable to talk about more of the radical ideas that I had at the beginning of my campaign that we held off on because I am a curator, artist, Afrofuturist running for a political office. And that, you know, kind of blows people's mind and that's radical enough. Right. <laughs> Once people kind of realized that I was very serious about this, this was not a performance. And I say this time and time again, that was not a performance in any way, shape or form, because I understood that I was dealing with human lives. Mm -hmm. So as much as I brought in, of course, creativity and art and all of these different elements, this was definitely a real endeavor for me. So the plan of action, I got to present my idea for universal basic income for Detroit to tackle this poverty cycle. You know, for me, it was always about how do we get to the root of the problem? Putting Band-Aids on things doesn't work. And politicians tend to do that. They're like, just give them jobs and then they'll be okay. And then, you know, maybe crime will go down. Well, we know that there's no security in jobs. (laughs) And then the minimum wage is so low. You know, it gets super problematic. So universal basic income can really help create that equality that we need, the economic equality to just balance it out so that people can have their basic needs met. And I presented that the universal basic income, half of it would be in fiat currency, which is our dollars, dollar bills and the paper money. And then the other half would be given in cryptocurrency that Detroit would create called the decoin. And man, yeah, <laughs> that how did that more go popular. over? Because that's a pretty <laughs> radical proposition. Yeah, it was super, super, super popular. So on an international scale, it became extremely popular. I'm still getting tweets and emails and things from people (laughs) who want to work on that project, which was great. I didn't realize that I would kind of open, you know, this Pandora's box (laughs) of intelligence and creativity and innovation, which was great. But I really didn't understand the connection and the network, the deep network of Mm -hmm. it, of universal basic income and cryptocurrency separately. And then sometimes they intersect. But for Detroiters, I ended up gaining more votes. And I gained the support of men, oddly enough. And that that was surprising. Yeah. And the reason I think is because I actually presented a plan of action. No other candidate would do that. And it is a risky endeavor to say this is exactly what I want to do. Yeah. I gained a lot of respect for that. I personally absolutely love that challenge to say, what are you really going to do? And how is this really going to work? I enjoyed stepping up to the challenge. As an Afrofuturist, you're always in future visioning mode. And it's really nice to kind of bring it down into something concrete on paper. 
But yes, I still want universal basic income for Detroit. I want it for our nation. I think that Detroit would be a great place to experiment with that idea. I do still think it would be a great idea for us to create our own digital currency to help boost the local economy, get a currency moving through our own city and systems and ecosystems. So this mayoral run was last year, and I'm hoping that some of the sort of rational logic and innovative and radical ideas that you put out there have have grown some legs. And I'm wondering now that you're not necessarily in the middle of the campaign anymore, but some of these ideas have some traction. Is that what you're spending your energy on currently? Like, where are you directing all your power and momentum right now? Yes, I am. So that's why the project, the blockchain technology crypto project that we're embarking upon is an extension of what I had laid out. Okay. First of all, whenever any candidate <laughs> is done with their campaign, their the level of exhaustion lasts for months. Oh, I believe it. I totally <laughs> believe it. So I had to recover. I had to reflect. And in that time period, I took the time to really understand blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So when I presented it, I had a very cursory, like very basic kind of understanding. Whereas now I have a deeper understanding and the potential for blockchain technology to really shift the way that we live, how companies perform. Um, because of the transparency built into blockchain technology, the potential for government to take it on and for the people to finally gain their power back because of the level of transparency and efficiency that it offers. All of those things are extremely important to me. And I am actually organizing a panel discussion called Blockchain because I want more black people and women to be involved in this industry. Oftentimes, I'm the only black person or the only woman in the room, Mm -hmm. you know, and just surrounded by a sea of white men. I think we just want to make sure that now that we're at the beginning stages of this technology, it's still emerging technology. We're still trying to figure out all the uses of it. This is a perfect time for all marginalized communities to be involved and to become aware. We cannot be tech shy anymore. You know, I'm the generation when the computer was created, you know, and was created in the sense that we could buy it for our home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you know, internet was created and emails and I got my first email in college. Right. But I was very lazy with technology. I didn't really understand how the internet functioned or worked and didn't really care. But with blockchain technology, I'm here, I'm present. I'm challenging myself because I do not have a finance background or a tech background. And the conversations are definitely (laughs) around. It's like, you know, beautiful techie geeks talking about technology. So you can imagine (laughs) that you're like holding onto your seat, like leaning in, trying to figure it out and decipher what he just said. I was going to say, it's like decoding (laughs) another language. (laughs) It is another language. And so they're talking to each other. And I'm, I'm forced to catch up and to figure it out. It's like your mom going to Japan to strengthen her Japanese. You're going yes. to, into tech spaces <laughs> to strengthen your techies. 
So you can yeah. speak that language so you can move it forward so you can bring yeah. it back to the communities who need it. I love it. Exactly. You're a translator. Yeah. Exactly. Ex- again. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what's happening. <laughs> and I do it all wearing heart glasses. I have heart-shaped glasses now. <laughs> So I do it with joy. <laughs> yes, I love that. I got my oh, first so job funny. in TV because I showed up to the audition with rhinestone safety glasses because <laughs> I was like, you know, safety doesn't have to not be glamorous or joyful. Like, I know that's right. <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> I want to learn a little bit more about your creative process. I mean, there's a lot going on in your brain. I, I can imagine it's a, a spectacular light show of you know, your synapses firing and things just getting really exciting when you have a new idea. So can you talk a little bit about how like an idea starts in your brain? Like where do those things come from? And when do things get really exciting for you? Oh, um, I think that, you know, I'm very much influenced by and inspired by being a black woman. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly trying to figure out the solutions to the issues that we face on a daily basis. I'm constantly trying to figure out how to dismantle white supremacy or or this idea of white supremacy that has captured our imaginations and is informing the work that we do or the the actions that we take up on others simply because it doesn't even serve white people. Mm -hmm. And I just believe that life is supposed to be more fun (laughs) quite honestly (laughs) I like it when people are laughing and having a great time and learning from each other and so I'm constantly trying to figure out why why are we intentionally and I say we just the human race intentionally creating pain and trauma and sorrow it doesn't really make sense to me it's illogical I think that we would be more advanced if we stop trying to kill each other and really focus on our traumas and heal. So that's like, you know, it's a, it's a big thing for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm a love bug. I love joy. And I really love it when everyone is experiencing it, not just me and my little bubble. That's what inspires me. And what gets exciting for me is when I'm with others and we are coming up with solutions. And we're all futurists. (laughs) So the solutions really push beyond what we normally think, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess an example of me and the way that my brain works, I've been thinking about how can we teleport so we can stop driving and (laughs) ruining the the environment and we don't have to have roads. And what happens if we don't have roads? You know, and so... I like to go into that kind of space because I do think it's possible for teleportation. I think it's possible. We just, you know, haven't found the technology yet, but soon we will. So, you know, I like to really, really push it. So that's what I mean by pushing our imagination Mm -hmm. to places that you normally would just leave in a movie. I also get excited when I hear about innovative projects. One of my colleagues, friends, mentor, brother, Anik Sashanti here in Detroit, please Google him. He's amazing. Onyx is the one who first taught me about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. He is in the process of 3D printing an exoskeleton musical instrument that responds to brainwaves. 
Oh. That will make sounds when he shakes hands with people. And these sounds are of a frequency that is so amazingly soothing. <laughs> like it, he, he, I've seen the journey for years and witnessed it and, and spent many hours talking about it. To experience an arc of innovation is super exciting for me. And I'm constantly, when I'm sitting and listening to people like Onyx, how can I support that? Because I might not have that skill set. But I do know I can support it. And I know that other people would love to support it. And so that's always what goes through my mind when I when I hear these amazing futures projects that now he wants to 3D print a house. So, you know, that has many implications when you're talking about a city that is plagued with poverty. How can we provide better housing mm-hmm. at a lower cost that is sustainable and and still works with the environment? But then, you know, we're decentralizing projection at the exact same time. So the power is in our hands and the people's hands. All of that is just like, yes, <laughs> uh, we're one step closer to liberation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that and that's what, you know, those are those moments that that excite me most. That excites me, too. I love that you almost over-imaginate. Like, you shoot so far into the future (laughs) that you can imagine completely different things. And then you can kind of sometimes reverse-engineer them in this time. Mm -hmm. But you can't even think of them unless you can train your mind to go that far in the future. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) Thank you. Well, we need to talk about you personally. I mean, we have been talking about you, and it seems like... This, but are we going to talk about sex now? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, quite honestly, so I'm a a pleasure activist and I interviewed Adrian Marie Brown, she's an amazing writer, thinker, futurist, and she's a pleasure activist as well. And she was talking about. You know, one of the things about black bodies that historically we are not supposed to experience pleasure, joy, desire. We were just seen as objects. So pleasure is a rebellion unto itself. Mm -hmm. And she was saying that every time a black person has an orgasm, that is a rebellious act and I was like great I'm gonna go and have as many orgasms as possible for the revolution yes yes you gotta take one for the team right it's just such hard work out here I'm interested like because a lot of a lot of your work comes from your own brain but is also very social in nature and very artistic very natural for you. Is there like a work Ingrid and a non-work Ingrid? Like, are you ever off duty and like not thinking about how you have a responsibility to help change society? Because even your orgasms, even your orgasms are for the good of the people. I know, right? (laughs) I love it. Yeah, no, I am. (laughs) Yes, there, there sort of is. Kind of. <laughs> when I travel, I always travel for work, but then travel is such a pleasure for me that it's joy. And I'm a definitely travel addict. I love to travel. I guess there are moments. It's hard. It's hard to distinguish, actually, because 
the fun Ingrid likes to go and sit with her brothers and I'm an only child by the way so when I say brothers are just like really close male friends of mine okay. and we literally geek out like that but it tends to cross over to work mm-hmm. there isn't really no my brain doesn't turn off I'm constantly thinking and to a point that I remember hanging out with someone and they were just like wow I've never been around someone who thinks so much so often you know <laughs> so even when I'm in my most relaxed state I want to start talking about something politics anything and what ifs yeah I really enjoy what ifs and yeah, I have the privilege of work being such a pleasure that it, you know, it crosses over in my, my personal life. <laughs> so, okay, so that leads me to a question because you're, you're somebody that you've self-described as a love bug. You wear heart glasses to mm-hmm. tech conversations. You have <laughs> orgasms as an act of rebellion. You're a pleasure activist, a psychosocial healer. All of this stuff is wrapped around you cultivating joy both for yourself and for other people and pollinating joy wherever you go does it sometimes ever catch you off guard like does sometimes joy find you without you being the architect of it and and if so can you describe like the last time you just got surprised and just delighted you know oh wow That's interesting. Possibly. I can't, you know, nothing, no one experience kind of comes to mind at the moment, but I am around youth. Yeah. And they give the best joy (laughs) (laughs) on earth. And it's surprising and unexpected and silly. I love how I can. I can be silly, Ingrid. I can go into my voices and I can dance around in tutus and they're just like, that's so amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, being around youth, around children has really been just the the light of my life for sure. I'm blessed to be around quite a a few children. I, I don't have children myself, but my friends do and my partner does. So... I'm very blessed to to just be around that pure, that pure joy, you know? You sound like you've also (laughs) really worked at staying open and, and receiving joy in its many forms and not maybe not judging it or resisting it if it doesn't match your expectation or something you've previously learned to be a familiar form of joy. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am very open yeah (laughs) well we really appreciate your openness it's i don't know if people can tell but you can feel it through the microphone for sure (laughs) so you spend your life thinking about the future and you go way far into the future or maybe not maybe it's a near near future but i love that you challenge your imagination in that way and i wonder if you can paint a, a picture or illustrate something that you'd like to see change or evolve personally for you or culturally your choice in the nearish future. And this is mostly for the benefit of our listeners who might not have an imagination like yours. So they can maybe wrap their brains around something they can hope for too. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So what I'm most excited about in this moment that we're all sharing, especially in the United States 
is the fact that we're being challenged about our own values and how we're adhering to them. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work that I do is about going inside. I always say the utopia is within. And in order for us to access that, we really have to be self-reflective. And so in order for us to really enjoy the flying cars or, you know, being able to vote online, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which Mm -hmm. is not that far away, we really, really have to decolonize ourselves. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we have to really understand our values, maybe have a radical reassessment of those values and then understand how we're compromising or not compromising those values when and where. Then thinking about the systems in which we're living and how they're actually serving humanity. Mm -hmm. Is it efficient? Is it progressive in the sense of like, are we going to progress by remaining in that system? Really understanding our relationship to humanity or humans, like You know, are we valuing one human life over another? Our relationship to the planet and how are we compromising maybe some of our values because of pleasure or convenience, even though it serves as a deep consequence for our home, which is our planet. So in the nearest future, the most immediate thing that we could do Mm -hmm. to actually manifest an amazing, you know, future to manifest our Wakanda. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we really have to go within. And, you know, I know that people might be searching for something else from me. And I've said this actually, I talked to somebody who was asking, how can I be a co-liberator? Because we're moving from ally to co-liberator. And it really, really starts with you. You, you know, individuals, we are all actually futurists. We, we have our own future visions. We may not dive deep into them or pay attention to them maybe as much as I do on a daily basis, but we all have it. But we have to understand we can manifest it and we are manifesting our futures in every moment mm-hmm. of every day. And that is constructed by how we're positioned in our minds emotionally and mentally. It's just so, so, so important that everyone takes on the responsibility to dismantle white supremacy. It is definitely infecting everything. If we don't do it, everything we design, everything we create, everything we build, everything we imagine will be infected with white supremacy. And as you can see, all it's doing is harm. Mm -hmm. And we don't want any more harm. We want to be dancing and laughing and having a good time. And no matter how, you know, what technology is going on, those are some of the basic things that we want. We want to be loving each other and really be unafraid to embrace. And that's the future that I'm really, really fighting for. I love that future. Mm -hmm. And you said something earlier. One of the things that scares me and concerns me is that so many white people don't even understand that white supremacy isn't good for them. <laughs> it's not good for all of us. You know what? You know, can I just say how much I love my city? So, <laughs> yes. so white people of Detroit are holding their own sessions 
to have these conversations. And I'm witnessing that these are white friends in different groups, like meaning, you know, some are within activist groups, some are within, I don't know, a tech group, like different networks are doing this work. Mm -hmm. And I love that. I love them for taking that on simply because it's too exhausting for black people, for people of color, for any marginalized community to do that work. And it has to spider out. It has to become a mesh. It has to become a conversation in all the places, the supermarkets, the cocktail parties, the academic institutions. It just has to be part of the conversation. And it's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. It's sticky. It's uncomfortable. People, feelings are hurt. I get it. But once you move past the hurt, past the shock, and really go deeper, uh, you'll feel better. (laughs) And you'll feel lighter. I'll say this last thing. I gave a talk with Bryce Detroit here at our Scarab Club. Please look up Bryce Detroit. He's an amazing, amazing thinker and music producer. And we had a conversation about Afrofuturism pleasure. And the room was majority white men. Nice. So he, he stopped in the middle of his talk and asked, why are there so many white men here? And nobody really wanted to raise their hand and answer. So, you know, being a good host, I kept it moving uh-huh. and... Then I posed the question again, like, but really, I re- we really want to know, why are you here? And one man raised his hand and he said that he was raised in a very racist, patriarchal, Catholic family. And he was looking for liberation from all of that. And he believed that Afrofuturism is that portal to liberation. And that's when I was like, yes, this is the work. And, and I want I want more of this and I want more white men to come to my talk yes. and get free. Of course. So, you know, Afrofuturism, there's many different portals. And the reason that I, I mentioned Afrofuturism is, is that you can talk about some really heavy, heavy things in this space that is not really threatening, I think, to white people. That's, again, how art and culture kind of serves as this, like, this catalyst for for growth in a way that is less confrontational. Yeah. And, and so now we can really have a deeper understanding of things because it's kind of packaged in a different way. It's just way more inviting and seductive. And because it's <laughs> not confrontational, the defenses don't go up. And when the defense is down, you mm-hmm. can actually hear what people are yeah. saying and imagine yes. things without feeling personally yeah. targeted. And mm-hmm. yeah. 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 Create some understanding. It's good. It's good. It creates some understanding. Yeah. yeah. So it's good. It's good. It's work. It's work. We all got that work. Yeah. It's worth it. <laughs> I'm sure you've got a lot of stuff that you're planning on doing or that you're already working on, but what's a current project that you want our listeners to know about? Um, and then where can they go to find out more about it? Sure. Ancient Future News is my own podcast, and I am interviewing futurists within our communities. And super excited to launch it. I start with quite a few innovative thinkers from Detroit. And then I probably will start interviewing people from all over our beautiful planet. So that's one of the major projects. 
And please look me up on Facebook. You can follow me. I can't accept friends anymore. <laughs> I'm also on Twitter as Ingrid LaFleur and Instagram as Maison LaFleur. And there you can like just stay abreast with all the things that I'm doing. I'm organizing as a cannabis advocate, which... I'm sure a lot of people are interested in that. Mm -hmm. And I'm also organizing around blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. So, you know, there will always be events and it's going to get busier and busier this summer. Super exciting. And when you come to Detroit, hit me up and let me know. I, I love giving people a list of where to go. We do not have a cultural affairs department in Detroit, so it's very difficult to find out all the different events that are happening. Um, but I love sharing because I, I think Detroit just has so much to offer and it's just so much fun. I loved talking to you so much. And I love what you're doing. And I love Detroit. And so I, I love that Detroit has you and you have Detroit. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Much love for Detroit. <laughs> I've never been to Detroit, but I'm sure it's great. <laughs> I'm hoping to go. Oh, man, it's got the best people. Well, thanks so much, Ingrid. We really appreciate it. This has been awesome. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Amy and Jamie. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. I don't know about you, but I'm overwhelmed, yes. blown away. My, my brain's on fire with imagining the future, and my heart is exploding because I definitely felt like a nice, loving vibration coming from her the whole conversation. I totally agree with that. She is a really interesting human with so much to offer and so much in her brain. It is a lot to take in because she really does look very far into the future. And a lot of people just aren't ready for that yet. And so like you really have to take people on like baby steps a lot of times to make any progress. But I, I do think she's really envisioning an incredible future if we are able to break down, you know, barriers you know, of, of colonization and ego and supremacy and all of those things. There, there's just a lot to talk about here. Like <laughs> oh, so much, so much. But I think that the thing that I, that I took from this is that she understands that patience translating and educating is part of the work. She understands right. a space where people are able to understand and listen. She understands that coming at it from a place of love rather than a place of anger with an intention for healing rather than additional harm is the way forward. Yeah, I also think what I, I loved about what she said is that you have to do research to understand the gray area of every issue. When she was talking mm -hmm. about politics, and that's one thing that I just get annoyed about these days, especially with the internet and clickbait and all this Twitter crap. But like, every issue is not black or white. Everything right. has gray areas. And you, whether you're in politics or not, like anything that you do, any research on, it, it's getting a better understanding of, of both sides of an issue or you know, where those two issues overlap because not everything is polarizing. A lot of things are complicated. 
Yeah, I just think what, what she said about doing your research and really understanding an issue is incredibly important. And I love that she made a point. I mean, obviously she did this during the campaign, but even just in this podcast to remind our listeners that her run for mayor was not a performance. It was very human-centered and based in the research that she was doing and all of the conversations she was having with the people in the community and figuring out how to really understand, like you just said, the research of the, the issues. But that plan of action that she put forward, whether she ran the mayoral race or not, that plan of action still is a, is a existing, living plan. And it got a lot of exposure. Some of those ideas really got some traction and now those seeds are planted. Mm-hmm. And so the, the power of, of putting herself out there to run for mayor in order to plant those seeds I just can't high five her enough. Yeah, she mentioned like when people are running for office, they're running to win. And she was running. I mean, of course, I'm sure she would have been happy if she won. But to educate and to get messages out there about things that are in the gray area or thing or or a different way to look at things or Mm -hmm. specific ways to solve problems that aren't being discussed by her opponents, you know? Yeah, so I think that's really powerful and really brave to go out there and just be like, here's a different way of looking at all of this. Like, I'm just tired of, of the, you know, repeating the same cycle of like not doing anything or not caring or not having a plan of action. Right. So it was brave of her to go out there and say, like, these are specifically the things I want to do. And here's how I want to do it. And I can only imagine the the personal toll it could have taken, I mean, you just, you have to put yourself in front of people who want to debunk your ideas and deconstruct you and make you seem like you don't have credible thoughts or experience. And it's just physically grueling. So when she said it took months to recover, I was like, of course, yeah, it, I bet. of course it did. Like it, it's going to take me a little time to recover from this conversation because I'm feeling like. <laughs> Sympathy tired for that. <laughs> for that. I know. I really, I do want to live in the future that she envisions, though. It sounds like a really positive and nurturing place to be. And we all kind of need that to be happy in our lives. There's so much negativity and it's unfortunate. So, you know, the fact that she can still do all of these things, come out the other side still saying like, like that there's a, you know, there's hope is really I don't know it's comforting it's super comforting (laughs) it's also very empowering (laughs) that every single time she has an orgasm (laughs) 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 there's progress being made (laughs) thanks for listening Please subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes, and see images of Ingrid's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Clever Podcast because we really like to hear from you. And we also want you to find us on YouTube and subscribe to our channel. This episode of Clever was edited by Ty Navaris and Alex Perez with music by L1011. Hello there. This message is coming to you from the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, a collection of fascinating conversations with leading historians, giving you the lowdown on history's biggest characters. 
hidden stories, and greatest adventures. Speaking of great adventures, this week, the History Extra podcast is brought to you by Booking.com. Whether you're looking for a culture-filled city break, a local getaway, or a far-flung adventure, you can save at least 30% with Booking.com's Black Friday deals. These deals are for a limited time only, so you'll need to book before 1st of December to make the most of them. But the good news is that you'll have the flexibility to travel anytime in 2021. Head to booking.com forward slash Black Friday to book your next big adventure.